Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 136. And my guest this week is Frank Turner. What a guest. Very excited this happened. I met Frank a long time ago. I uh, haven't caught up with him or chatted with him in a really long time, so this was such a pleasurable experience. He's on tour right now in Australia with the Counting Crows. He's also doing some solo shows. If you check his tour dates, he's also probably playing in your town this year. This man has a huge touring itinerary already uh, in the States and uh, Europe and Canada, all over the place. You should check out those dates. Um, if you are new here, I want to let you know that there's a bonus episode available right now where Frank answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month to get access to all of those bonus episodes. Plus, if you subscribe for a little more, you can submit questions to upcoming guests, all sorts of fun stuff. There's a Discord channel, yada, yada, yada. Would appreciate your support. That is, once again, patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. What else is going on in my life? Well... Uh, tomorrow, well, I'm recording this on Tuesday, full transparency. Uh, on Thursday, I turned 40. It is shocking how much time flies. Feels like just yesterday I was writing the record is survived by, which was all about turning 30. And let me tell you, turning 30, not a big deal. I really, really overthought that one. <laughs> uh, cause here we are at 40 and life is much different. Much, much different. My cat passed away on Monday. That was extremely sad and unexpected. Still sort of in shock about that whole thing. His name was Dudley. We, uh, we got him at 11. He passed away at 17. He showed no signs of ever being sick and uh, just got violently ill. And then we took him to the vet. Turned out he had cancer. Uh, missing him. Um... As I said, I'm recording this on Tuesday, so tonight I'm having a, a little birthday party with some close friends. Uh, I don't think I've had a birthday party, like an actual party party, since I was a child. Uh, usually I've been on tour or just, 
you know, get pizza with friends or something. But this is a, this is a whole thing. Cause uh, I was convinced at 40, you should probably celebrate something. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't really do too much personal talking at the front of these episodes. Cause uh, I feel like it's not really the, the venue for that. But anyway, um, lastly, I'll say if you uh, enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is, you're listening to this, that helps a lot. Leaving a positive rating and review would help oh so much. Oh, I keep forgetting to mention Touche Amore is going to be doing a summer tour in Europe. Uh, dates are already announced. Tickets are already on sale. Uh, you could check them over at toucheamore.com slash tour. Lots of festivals, some club shows, uh, some great support uh, from an incredible band called Boneflower, uh, band Chalk Hands, band Wrong Man, which is members of Rise and Fall. Lots of cool shows. Um, if you're overseas and you're listening to this, I hope you can make it out. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the lovely, the charming, the hilarious, the talented Frank Turner. What's up, Frank? It's nice to see you. Before you know, this this always happens. We start. We're about to start recording, and uh, but then of course we talk before we actually yeah. start. So we already had a little bit of the the, the catch nice up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. a catch up. I mean, it's it's such a joy to see you, my friend. It's been far too long as we were discussing, uh, and it's an honor to be on your podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, when really trying to rack my brain, I know this wasn't it, but um, there was a festival that we played together in Germany. It, I forget which one it might have been, but I did just see because we just announced our Europe, Europe tour that we are going to be playing together. Oh, really? On, yeah, I think it's uh, one of these, like maybe Jera on air. Or oh, yeah, we're doing yeah. Jera. Yeah, yeah, we're doing both yeah. of those actually. Oh, oh amazing! Fantastic. Okay, cool. Well, then we will get to hang in, in person. Yeah, it was like last night we we like uh, you know had our tickets go on sale for all of our club shows or whatever. So like I was finally doing the thing where I was looking at all the festivals we were doing. Oh yeah, and yeah. I was like, all right, I got to look at these lineups. And there was a couple that made me feel very good because I knew that I'd be seeing some friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's funny that you do that. I've, I I because the problem with festival lineups, as you well know, is different days, right? Yes. So I in the past I have like. Um, made the error of going, oh, I'm going to see so-and-so at that festival. And then you show up and no, you're not um, because you're on different days and you're traveling around. So like I've kind of got into a habit in my old age when it comes to festivals of like I don't do anything until the morning I wake up and I find a time schedule. And if there's somebody on that time schedule who's dressing room and need to go and bug, then I'll go and do that. But it's like, otherwise, you're just going to break your heart. Do you know what I mean? Totally. It's like, oh, you know, that one of my very best friends who I haven't seen in four years is playing tomorrow, and I'm going to be 600 miles away from here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I feel it. I feel it. Um, yo, so it was wild when I was, so, you know, the show's all about first experiences and things like that. Um, and it's really fun to learn things about people that I know. You know, it's like you and I are, are pals, but we've, you know, we don't know everything about each other, obviously. Um so uh, you were born in Bahrain. That's interesting. I, w- I was. Yeah, my, my dad um, was working uh, for a company out there for a few years um, in, a, in a, you know, expat. I'm not sure that he in any meaningful way, like engaged with the community out there or anything. But uh, there was a uh, this was in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. And my I was my little sister can sort of remember I lived there for six months. And then came back to the UK. So I have no memory of it at all. In fact, what I have is the word Maharak written in my passport, which um, less so nowadays, but there was a real period of history when American kind of like passport and immigration people would see that word and you'd see their face light up like a Christmas tree. They'd go, ah, I can fuck with this guy. 
Um, and uh, and I get taken uh, to a little room and quizzed a lot. Um, oh, that's so. fun. That's fun. On behalf of my country, you know, uh, <laughs> I, got, I got nothing to say. We're we're well. We're, that that was we're fun people, aren't we? That, then then things flipped at a certain point because that then uh, there was a period of history where. Uh, and I, I, we, we always used to find it out of Boston, right? Because we used to have a lockup in Boston where okay. we kept our touring gear. We do, we've actually changed that now. But um, And the border, because we've toured, we play Boston a lot. We do well in Boston. And I think because we've played in Boston with the Dropkick Murphys quite a lot, the passport control guys at Boston Airport knew who I was for a few years. And it would be like, you you know, you're standing there. And it's something about something like a passport control crew just makes me kind of like think that I'm probably doing something illegal that I need to hide. Do you know totally. what I mean? Yes. And, and and you get to the front and you're all kind of like, oh, God, don't say the wrong thing. And then it got to, for a few years, they're like, what's up, motherfucker? Like, what's the frick? Kind of thing. And it was like, oh, oh, that's, whoa, that's weird. Uh, but they were very nice. Do you know what I mean? But like, so it did flip after a time. Dude, I can relate so much. Yeah, you feel there's very few circumstances while in the touring life where you just make yourself feel so small every time you have to walk up to that counter. Cause oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's like, you're like, I don't, I know I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just here to play some shows, but like, is that going to be okay today? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so. I yeah, exactly. You just, yeah. yeah. On your best behavior. Um, but, uh, so you, you move from there. Uh, please tell me what the pronunciation of the village. Is it me, me and stroke? Me, me and Stoke. Okay, me and Stoke. Me and yeah, Stoke. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I ended up there. Uh, well, my, I should say my parents ended up there. Sure. Not long after that. Um, I was there for sort of, well, I was there. I grew up there for a few years. Um, I got shipped out when I was like uh, just shy of eight years old um, to uh, like boarding school environments, um, which was not something I wanted to do and something that I find something I talked to my therapist about a lot, let's say that. You know sure. I mean? um, but uh, so, and then it was kind of weird because it was like, I guess I did technically live, me and Stokes just outside of the city of Winchester in the south of England. Um, and I guess that is sort of home, technically speaking, but I wasn't there very much from a very young age and I was pretty rootless for a long time. Got it, got it. Yeah, because I, I was looking it up too. It looked like the population of that, of that village is like, quite small so yeah, i was like 12 i don't know like <laughs> yeah i think, I think it, it's funny because it said it has a, a population count but it says it's from 2001 i'm like i feel like that should probably be updated but it was yeah. like it was like under 700 or something yeah i, I mean like, it's just it's a small yeah. village i mean there's other yeah. villages there's lots of villages around it and it was like sure. 10, 10 miles away from the city but it's a small city as well yeah so you know the first question i usually ask uh you know musicians is when you were young, like what was the first thing that you remember connecting with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that like your parents were playing, but something that you found that made you feel like you had your own identity. Uh, well, I have a very specific answer to this, and it's a moment that was life changing for me. I've I have told this story many times to the point where you know how the, these things do they become slightly rote, and I'm I was thinking about this the other day and trying to really remember it like authentically again yeah you know i mean but essentially um i used to be into games workshop you know like um warhammer and that kind of shit like oh, okay Goblins, sure yeah the, the like little, the figurines like, and stuff yeah, yeah 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 and um i used to play with a friend of mine um he used to kick my ass all every time instantly and uh his older brother was an iron maiden fan and we were playing in my friend's bedroom and his older brother's bedroom was kind of ajar and he had a the stranger in a strange land poster on his bedroom wall which I mean, to the eyes of a, because I was 10 when this happened. So the eyes of a 10-year-old, that's a zombie cowboy in the future. 
Um, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool, and assumed that it was related in some way to Games Workshop. Oh, and, that makes sense, yeah. Uh, and like, well, right, exactly. And then, because I wasn't, I wasn't like unaware of the existence of popular music. I had an older sister, and it was on telly and that kind of thing. And I, I remember seeing Grease 2 on TV and stuff like that. So, like, you know, I, I was aware that, like, quote unquote, pop music or rock music or whatever existed, right. but it didn't feature in my life, especially. My parents don't believe in modern music. My mum, my mum bought a copy of Sergeant Pepper for the car for long car rides, which was her con- her concession to modernity. This is in <laughs> this is in like the late nineteen eighties. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, and, and and indeed, I don't think she'd ever heard it before. Um, anyway, so so and, and my I said, oh, that's cool. Like, what Warhammer Army is that, or whatever it was? And my friend yeah. said, oh no, no, that's a band that my lame brother's into, kind of thing. And I properly was just like, the fuck, are you talking about this? Not, that's not what bands are like. Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's like that's not what music is. Yeah. Uh, and but I sort of took a note of the name and um, I mentioned it in the way that a ten-year-old might to my dad. Um, and my dad and I had a pretty fractious relationship when I was a kid that got worse uh, and has recently changed in a different way. But anyway, the, uh, but one of the only things that I really remember him sort of doing that was sort of thoughtful for me as a kid is I mentioned this. Um, this band that I'd seen, and he didn't know anything about it. He had no idea what it was, but he bought me one of their albums, which was Killers, on a cassette uh, from the record shop at the train station when that was a thing. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, so he came home, and I had no preamble for what this was going to sound like. Zero, nothing, no idea of anything, and nor did anyone I know. Do you know what I mean? So that's yeah. why I think of this, because it was mine. So I went upstairs and kind of, I had like a, I think my sister had like a, dual cassette boombox type thing. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. I borrowed that and I put it in and the first track on that record is The Eyes of March, which is an instrumental that's about a minute and a half long. With like 18,000 rototoms and shit. And I just was like immediately like blown away and kind of intrigued. It was like, what is this? Do you know what I mean? It had no, just no frame of reference. And then I think I probably had decided I was going to love it anyway because <laughs> I'd sort of made this venture, but it really grabbed me. It really just in, you know, and in the way that kids do, I just got completely obsessed with I made him for a long time after that. But that was, that moment was, that was a, a pretty momentous day in my life. No, I could only imagine. Um, I mean, all of the imagery and, and even the name Iron Maiden, I, it totally makes sense why you would think it was some sort of like game related thing. Yeah. Um, do you think there was any hesitation from, your folks at all at least like with the imagery and all of that to be like oh i'm buying my child an album called killers oh uh, yeah and- i mean well and it's got a guy with an axe on the front that i have totally, tattooed yeah. on my leg which yeah. which instantly a while ago somebody pointed out looks quite a lot like kellyanne conway uh <laughs> which is which is a yeah. shitty thing to have tattooed in your leg anyway um but but uh <laughs> um but um i mean no i don't think that they were initially but the next thing that then happened is I, I kind of got my pocket money and, and started buying. It was on cassette, and I bought all the first. Uh, it was up to no, up to and included no prayer for the dying. But all of the first sort of ten Maiden records at that point. And um, uh, then I kind of I remember getting a copy of Raw magazine because I had a feature on Iron Maiden's Fear of the Dark album, which was coming up. But it also had a big feature on Cannibal Corpse, uh, and uh, which had a pretty kind of like. Schlocky, gory photo shoot with the band, and my mum saw it and went, "No, no, no." Uh, no. And yeah. I was, I was then banned from buying music magazines. 
I know I was not allowed to go to shows or all this kind of thing. I mean, it, it became kind of subterfuge. I mean, in fairness, I was already kind of being sent away at boarding school kind of most of the time at this period of time. So it was slightly moot uh, how much of an effect that had. But I certainly like kept my music taste secret from my parents for a good few years after that. No, that totally makes sense. What was uh, what did end up being your first concert? Uh, my first concert. Well, so this was uh, <laughs> the, the actually there was a band called Snug, right? Who were a pop punk band. And the thing about Snug was their singer's mum was a friend of my mum, <laughs> which slightly fucked with my mum's kind of scale of priorities. And I didn't know anything about Snug, but my mum was like, "Well, because after a time, I got into Nirvana, and then Nirvana talked about being a punk band, so I started listening to Green Day and Offspring, and punk became pretty central to my identity. And I must have been about." 14 13 14 somewhere around there and and snug were playing a show in pretty locally to to me and my mum sort of allowed me to go because it was her friend's kid kind of thing and they were they were a cool they sound like ash i don't know if you got oh yeah, yeah 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 it was that kind of territory and i just remember i was a place called the joiners arms southampton which i now know very well and um i'm very friendly with everybody there and i was definitely underage but but i'm not sure my mom knew that um and i and i remember kind of pogoing for the whole show including between the bands oh um, in That's a way that was probably insufferable to everybody right. there but i do remember that that was my first show yeah uh not being familiar is was that like a band that is known you know, no, like, no, like no. The UK, or are they like a local band kind of? No, no, they were t- they were on a national tour. They weren't oh, okay. from around us, but they were doing the kind of like 200 cat level. Oh, sure. Uh, and they was kind of, it was busy, I seem to remember. And they had songs on Steve Lamack and stuff like this, but they it never went anywhere further for them. However, their uh, guitar player was a guy called Ed Harcourt, who is now a, a well-respected songwriter, um, kind of plays with Tom Waits and people like that and that sort of thing. And, and indeed has become a dear friend of mine. Wow, um, that's quite so. A, and and he is also yeah. He's also not super stoked when I bring up Snug in interviews. So for <laughs> for Ed Harcourt, hey Ed Harcourt was in Snug. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. Uh, did uh did you end up like it's well actually no it's funny I I wanted to to backtrack a little bit because you and I are so close in age. Um, I wanted to ask you because uh, you mentioned Nirvana. Mm. Um, I, it's always an interesting story or a thing to ask people in our age group. But do you remember where you were when you found out that Kurt had passed? Yes, definitely. Um, because basically, um, when I was about 13, I decided I got a copy of Nevermind and it really blew me away. Um, and I, I remember listening to it like until the tape wore out kind of thing. And that would have been that would have been in like 93 kind of thing. So it right. wasn't like when that came out. And then I got in utero and I actually and both then and now loved in utero a lot more. I, I it's it's their record, man. Like it's and that was that was such a punk rock record for me in the sense that like prior to that, um like I had a bedroom band from when I was like eleven years old with me and like my neighbor and he had a drum set and I had a guitar and we and we uh, we bullied our friend Toby into getting a bass guitar, having identified what a bass was, which took some doing. Um, but so we used to just, and we never played any shows; we just played in the bedroom. And like we were into like Metallica and Maiden and Judas Priest and Pantera um, and stuff like that and Sepultura. And like we couldn't really play any of that stuff, do you know what I mean? And even if we could, it wasn't very good. So we did quite a lot of like ACDC covers because that was a bit more playable. Um, the first song I ever played in the band was Highway to Hell. 
Um, so, uh, Hell yeah. not, not well, I might add. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then, and then I remember hearing, I mean, we liked Nevermind was cool, but then hearing in utero, it was, it sounded like a band in a room in a way that I could parse. Do you know what I mean? And I could figure out the chords pretty easily. Do you know what I mean? And so we started, I have this memory, which so all those memories, which at the time I thought it was a grave injustice. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh yeah, we used to, we were rehearsing in our bass players like back room and we were rehearsing a cover of Rape Me and we were all about 13 and we played it like 10 times in a row. And at the end of it features all three of us, 13 year old shouting, Rape Me for ages. <laughs> and his mum just came in and was like, what the fuck are you doing? You can't play that song anymore. And we were like, yeah screw you mom and yeah. then now like i say i mean if i heard a bunch of 13 year olds screaming rape me into a microphone i would be a little like uh don't do that yeah you know what i mean yeah, um, yeah, yeah so but but yeah so so in terms of so basically i then like at my school had a bit of a rep as this music kid not not necessarily a good rep i might add but it was a you know there was i think for a lot of people particularly into underground types of music, if there's something quite sort of nerdy collectory about it from the word go. And I, I was sort of going down that rabbit hole already. And then I remember, because again, this is pre the internet being a flicker in anybody's eye um, from a public point of view. Anyway, I remember like somebody, we had this like, I've, man, I've never thought about this for years, had this kind of like pin board for, for news stories and people were at the school were kind of encouraged to cut a news story out and put it on the pin board if it was interesting in its way of getting kids to care about current affairs and stuff. And somebody else cut out a news story saying that Kurt Cobain had killed himself and then was like, hey, you should read that. That's about that band you like. I was like, what? Um, uh, and I went and kind of read it because this, you know, this was in between Wednesdays when Kerrang came out or whatever. Do you know oh, what I mean? true. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I had no idea. And then I read it in this corridor room. And I remember being kind of annoyed because I'd only recently kind of started to be obsessed with this band. And like, it's a callous thing to say, but I, at the same time, I was, yeah, 12, 13 years old, you know? And I remember sort of taking it kind of personally and being like, hey, fuck you, man. I was just starting to get into that shit. <laughs> you just, I mean, it's, it's wild. You, you, the, the words I, when I'm, when telling my story, I always say the same thing where I say, I took it personally. Cause you and I, again, very close in yeah. age. And it was, he ended up passing like just a day before, I believe my birthday. And oh, I wow. was like, and they were my favorite band in the entire world. And I would say like, I was like, I felt like music was done for me where i was like <laughs> like yeah yeah you know like I, I was yeah like i heard it over the radio uh in my friends uh in, in like a family friend's car and we were all going out to get food and i didn't get out of the car i was just so devastated i just like wow. sat there yeah, and yeah, smoked yeah. um yeah but it was i mean it was it was it was a huge thing you know absolutely um, yeah wow that's yeah it's funny i ended up doing like a school project on his suicide actually which i found the other day and it's sort of no crushed, way. it's crushingly awful because basically what i did was like photocopy a bunch of newspaper and magazine articles and stick them in a folder with some photos that i found but um as kids do yeah as kids do but yeah i was I, it was i i you know we are of an age where that, that was just that band were such a sea change in everything you know yeah, one thousand percent. Um, it's funny to backtrack a little bit to what you know, you and your friends playing these metal covers, and then having things like ACDC and Nirvana click. My brain, I could be totally off base, but I just wanted to throw out there: um, is it because those bands were in like more standard tuning, and you guys were probably trying to play these uh, these metal songs in the same standard tuning? Uh, that was part of it. It was also just because the chords were slower. 
Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like I, yeah, I yeah. still struggle to play. I mean, I spent a lot of my teenage years learning to play thrash. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and yeah. I do actually think it gave me a fair amount of right hand discipline, which comes in handy. But like, I was trying to learn Hangar 18 by Megadeth. I was learning like all of Ride the Lightning by Metallica and not well. Do you know what I mean? Like, totally. it, it wasn't good. I'd play along with the record and it would be terrible. And it was like, you know, I couldn't, and it was just, but it wasn't, it was also production values. Do you know what I mean? It's like the drum kit. Oh, yeah. You got that click, 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 click metal drum kit thing. You've got kind of like, you know, double tracked, hard panned glossy metal guitars blah 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 and you know and i had a 30 watt amp and a and a boss overdrive pedal do you know what i mean um or or even like a zoom 505 or something you know <laughs> and yeah. like and then it was like you know um serve the servants kicks off in neutral and it's like and it was like oh i mean i'm not going to say that sounds exactly like us in our rehearsal room that's ridiculous but it's like it doesn't sound a million miles off and certainly that sounds like a drum kit that sounds right. like my mate Chris's drum kit, you know, it's being played better. Don't get me wrong, but like yeah. it just it, it it felt like real. Do you know what I mean? Totally. One of my favorite stories. I'm sure you've heard this too. But one of my favorite stories of that recording session was like, I guess they recorded some of the drums like in a, in a kitchen, uh-huh. and uh, you know, one of the higher ups, obviously at at Geffen or whatever, like stopped by and saw their drums for their next record being recorded in a kitchen, and was yeah. just like full panic. Like, what are yeah. we doing? What are we doing here? This is supposed to be the biggest album in the entire world. You yeah, can't yeah. do this. The, one funny. of the stories I love from that, apparently Kurt Cobain cut the vocals to the album in one sitting in order, in the order that they are on the record. And he had Francis Bean on his lap while he did it. <laughs> and, and basically yeah. the whole record was one take pretty much. Uh-oh. Like a couple of songs where they went back a bit, but pretty much he just sat in a chair and they set the mic up and pressed go on the tapes. And he just sung the record and that's the record. Could you? Yeah. I mean, it's like, when you think about it, I don't know that I've ever seen, I mean, someone out there will probably be like, well, what about this? But like, I don't know that I've ever seen a photo of Kurt Cobain in a vocal booth. (laughs) Right. Well, there was that, there was that whole, there is like a coffee table book of photos from the intro sessions that you can get. um, Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Which I I have somewhere, I think. Okay. It possibly, it possibly came with like the, the 20th anniversary or something or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 25th, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Time. Yeah, of course. Whatever that is. <clears throat> yeah. um, so uh, I had read that. Was Is this correct that piano was your first instrument? <laughs> is that true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I always say this slightly flippantly, but it's true. It's like I'm middle class, so my parents got me piano lessons when I was like eight years old. And this is such a huge thing for me because I was god-awful at the piano, and I still am. And I had piano lessons at school, and my piano teacher was called Miss Tritton. Uh, and she and I did not get along, and I'm going to take a fair amount of the blame. I mean, again, as an adult looking back, I mean, she was pretty, she was teaching kind of piano to like endless kind of like eight to 13-year-olds, almost none of whom gave a fuck. It must have been a pretty thankless job to do. And then um, I just never practiced. I was, you know, supposed to be learning those kind of like basic sort of Mozart little pieces you do when you're learning piano, classical pieces, basically. And um, I, I scraped through grade one, and then I really scraped through grade two, like I didn't do well. And she told me that music clearly wasn't my thing and that I should do something else with my time. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And this was, and the funny thing is, she told me that right at about the time I got into Iron Maiden. And um, I went out, and, and there was this guy at my school who was like this super rich kid who'd been bought a less paul goldtop for his birthday that he just kind of gone eh, and put it in a cupboard like didn't give a fuck and i found it and i said to him can i 
play that if I put it back? And he was like, yeah, I don't give a fuck, whatever. So that was, I started learning guitar um then and like uh and so and i've been told that by the by a music teacher to not do music i was like fuck you and yeah. started like and, and like i got burt whedon's play in a day book which has like how to read tab and a bunch of chord charts and shit and i just threw myself into it at that point what do you think was it just because you were excited about like metal and and all this other sort of stuff um yeah i guess yeah. The, the music that she'd been teaching me just did it had no resonance to me whatsoever um, right. And again, I mean, I don't hold that against her in any way. It must sure. have been a horrible job. You know what I mean? But like, I, I just sort of, I just didn't care. So I never right. practiced and it just wasn't, but in a funny way, like even now, like describing what I was doing with her and then the thing that I had recently fallen in love with as the same thing feels like a category error to me. You know, they were just so removed from each other. Um, I mean, there is, there is a part of me that wishes I could play piano better now than I can because I'm, I'm very much the kind of like, one hand and one finger kind of piano thing you know what i mean and like yeah that's me but uh the ghost of that teacher is the one behind you just haunting you saying yeah you're yeah you're not good at this you're never gonna be good at this I, I do remember like one of my last piano lessons i'd gone out and i got the sheet music for uh i would do anything for love by meatloaf which had just come out and they had the sheet the piano music and i i was kind of at the time i was like a medium meatloaf fan i've gone on to become a massive meatloaf fan but like um it was the only like piano sheet music for a song that i even remotely cared about that i could locate and i took it in for a lesson and she just kind of point blank refused to teach me how to play it yeah it's it's a big ask there's a lot yeah. going on in that song yeah it's great i mean yeah i still can't play it now oh my god uh totally off subject um what I think about what I think about the '90s, the thing that always kind of makes my brain break, and just with like the changing of guard and how different things are now, you know, amongst a billion other things. But like the fact that that song, which is like ten minutes long, was a single. Oh yeah, it's crazy. The same it's way amazing. like Mazzy's Star Fade Into You is also like a seven minute, very slow song, also a single. It's yeah, just yeah. like these things would never happen now. It's totally. Crazy. But then it's funny, I, so a couple of years ago, I mean, uh, one of my best friends got me a cameo from Meatloaf for my birthday, and it was the single most insane thing ever, God rest his soul. But yeah. like, because she asked for like a couple of minute video, he sent me a 28 minute long video of him just like talking absolute insanity, like just kind of rambling, telling stories about where, how much he weighed when he was born, like what he likes to hear in his vocal wedges, who, how they mic'd up the guitars on battles, how, just, just talking, just rambling away and oh then God. at the end of it like he sings a bit of a song he's tries to he can't work spotify he's trying to pull out one of his songs to sing along with and then he sings along and then he just starts screaming keep on rocking and then it ends and it's just like this totally totally idiosyncratic thing that's absolutely incredible uh, yeah. i'm assuming your friend probably was like hey this guy this guy's a professional musician too and he probably yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. So, could you but, imagine if he just did that for everybody well, I mean, you kind of get the impression that he hadn't done that many of them at that point. <laughs> okay, yeah. He's got he didn't a very... quite understand the instructions yet. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely kind of like feeling his way through the form, should we say? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's like um, you know when your parents try to text you. You know, it's like, but to the extreme situation where it's like, okay, this person's still figuring this out. That's really funny. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I was very sad when he passed away. Of course, he was, he was yeah, a, a great thing what a yeah what a just mighty force mighty force he was um yeah. so what was because you so you mentioned you had this bedroom band um yeah. and then the first band that i 
uh, noticed when looking stuff up was a, a band whose music I found, which is fucking sick, is the band Knee Jerk. Oh, God. Yeah, so, I mean... Is that the first band that played shows, or did you have a sh- uh, any bands um, before that that played no, shows? We, no, fucking hell. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm going to preface all this by saying that, like, I'm now that I'm in my early 40s, I'm starting to approach an age where, like, I can regard all of what we're about to talk about with with humor rather than just like nuclear levels of cringe. Uh, I mean, the, the cringe is still there, but like, you know, like, so this bedroom band I was in, we played like we played two shows. Yeah. So technically, my first show is my older sister's birthday. It's worth saying that she did not want me to play. Um, but my mom kind of like forced her to have me and my band play. And like, she had a bunch of friends and she had, and she, it was probably like her 15th birthday, I guess. So I would have been 12. And my bass player in the band, who was a bit more savvy and was like, not only interested in girls, but had the beginnings of some idea about how to do something about that was like, you know, we should learn some songs that they might like kind of thing and i was like no nah, man we're definitely doing hangar 18 or whatever <laughs> <laughs> badly i might add and indeed quite a lot of work because right from the way I go i was like writing songs i mean they were terrible bullshit but it yeah. was like i remember like i just write down kind of four random chords on a piece of paper and then scribble out a bunch of lyrics and then just we'd play the four chords you know power chords in the bass and then go bah, 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 for like and that was a song happy yeah. days um I remember we had a song called Bombardment that <laughs> was about a bombardment. <laughs> Incredible. Um, so, those, so we did two shows of that. Then I had a kind of uh, brief kind of pop punk band at school. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm about to tell you this. That was called Badger Doritos. And there's a reason why it was called Badger Doritos, which was, I don't know if you remember the song by Goldfinger in which he lists great punk bands, Dead Kennedy's Minor Threat. Right, uh, it's the kind of a spoken section in the middle of a Goldfinger song, okay. and and he then says "bad religion" in a weird Spanish accent, and I had I now know that's what he said, but he came in "bad religion," uh, and we were all just like, "What did he just fucking say?" And then we thought he said "bad Doritos," and we were like, "Well, let's call ourselves that so that we're already name checked as a classic punk band and a Goldfinger song, which is kind of punk. I mean, it's a fucking terrible name for a band, but do you see what I mean? The reasoning's kind of I love it. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's cheeky. At any yeah, rate. yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and you know, you will never find another band with that name, so you know, right? That, yeah, you know, it's not taken. Yeah, but we we did a demo, which I will execute anyone who owns a copy of it. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was awful. Um, and I think we played like one or two shows at school. But then, so basically, so basically, that band was a four piece, and. Um, it was me, uh, my friend Chris, my friend Ben, and then this uh, Chinese guy who we knew called Chang. This lovely guy. This is a crazy story. He kind of disappeared. Uh, two things happened. First of all, we, me and Chris and Ben started getting into like Boy Sets Fire and Refused and that sort of territory of stuff and wanted to do something that was less like Green Day uh, and Rancid and, and that, all of which I still love to this day, but it was like we were more interested in this slightly more emo, hardcore, emo core this is sort of 98, probably, that sure. sort of territory. And yeah. then, but then also our, um, our bass player disappeared. <clears throat> he literally just didn't come back to school one time. And then I ran into him in Beijing um, about eight years ago when I was playing in Beijing. He came to my show and said, hey. I was like, where have you been? He went, prison. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Uh, and apparently, yeah, he spent like a decade in prison. So, um, Oh, my God. 
not he couldn't really quite get to the bottom of why, but he also didn't like uh, boy sets fire. He referred to them as the smashing pumpkins, like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> he thought they sounded like smashing pumpkins. Yeah. That he hated. He was like into the Ramones and nothing but the Ramones. That's okay. Guy, you know the kind of guy, I'm right? About. Sure. Right. Um, anyway, so we we so Bazdari has lost a bass player and changed, lost our shitty band name and became Knee Jerk. Um, so we were three piece and Knee Jerk. We. I mean, we were 16 when we started. Um, we did, we made an album, well, 12 songs or 13 songs in like one day and then burned it on CDRs because our guitarist mum had a CDR burner, which in 1998 was big fucking news. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we printed out sleeves and glued them ourselves and did a few hundred copies of that. And I don't think it was very good. Um, and then we did a split EP with another London hardcore band called Abjure. Yep. That was that was all right, actually. I mean, in, I, even at the time, I was aware that the Abjure side of it was a shitload better than ours. Uh, but still, it was nice to be considered in company. Um, and then I'm, we did... I'm just saying from an outside perspective, because I was like, oh, I wonder if I could find any of this, whatever, and God oh, bless God. YouTube. Um, but Is it on fucking YouTube? Jesus it is. Christ. <laughs> uh, I'll say the songs from that split are fucking pretty killer. Like, it's, like you could tell that you guys are into a lot of that... Uh, like you know the actual correct word screamo you know like yeah, yeah 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 we were like, into like Saisha and um, totally and you, you can know. hear that and you know the best slash worst slash best slash maybe worst again thing about that genre is that it's like the typical just because you can play this music doesn't mean you should play this music but it's pretty <laughs> easy music to play like, yeah yeah totally and, and like well dissonant yeah, chords and scream and it's, scream a lot i mean we yeah. got a review we got a review of that ep that described that described the knee jack side as sounding like a bunch of pterodactyls fighting over some meat which we took as an enormous compliment which um, you could describe that as converge as well so. no quite and we i remember converge was a huge and still is but was a huge yeah. fan we bought a because this is back when you used to buy records from distros remember and there was no totally. way of previewing any of it so you read the fucking the paragraph describing it and we used to um, uh, order stuff for the initial records catalog uh, all the time and no idea as well and all this stuff. And I remember we ordered a copy of When Forever Comes Crashing and I think we thought it was going to be an emo record because of the band name and something it said in a sleeve. And I remember yeah. it arrived and it's got that kind of like fetus in a jar on the front cover and we were like, uh, what the fuck? And totally. Then, uh, that record just like blew my mind, you know. But yeah, so we and, and like so that well, then the final part, chapter of that band is that we did an album called The Half Life of Kissing, which um, is an interesting thing to me now because I would have been 17 when we wrote it and 18 when we recorded it. And then we we had a DIY label who wanted to put it out and they pressed a bunch of copies and then we broke up. <laughs> um, the most emo core thing you could have possibly done. Yeah, totally. Done. And then, well, and also actually this is, well, so the, the, that record, it was like, it was basically our kind of grasp exceeded our reach, but in a way that I find really interesting and in that it was, wasn't quite a concept record, but it, and it was very much as some of its influences. We were super into like Cave-In, uh, Refused, um, Converge, all that kind of stuff. And it had sort of like a conceptual theme that was partly based around the surahs of the Quran going through it. And the opening track is called The Ineluctable Modality of the Sensible, which is a James Joyce thesis. And do you know what I mean? It was like it had some kind of intellectual heft to it and even some musical heft. We just weren't good enough at singing or our instruments to pull it off, uh, in my opinion. Well, what's wild, too, is because I, you know, I heard a couple songs off that and a couple songs off the split. And there's a big jump musically, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the split is more like Boy Sets Fiery, whereas uh -huh. the, 
that record is more like double bass grindy oh yeah 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 yeah. we we were so we were super into obsessed with until your heart stops by cave totally yeah and 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 but not good enough to really pull that off you know but we so also to give a flavor of where things went because like we got particularly me and the guitar player we were like super intellectual about everything and i remember we were like having that discussion that everybody has at some point about how do we deconstruct emotional authority in the context of a show you know like there's a raised piece of flooring that's hierarchical um or there's like a bill with bands playing in an order how do we get rid of that and all this sort of shit and um our fight, we played a show in Nottingham and then broke up. I remember that. It wasn't until somebody, a guy called Dave Gamage, published a memoir about his time in the UK hardcore scene recently. And he sent me a copy and I wrote a foreword for it. And But what blew my mind is there's an ent- sort of diary entry in there describing that last show and what I had forgotten, right? So we were headlining a show and there was like 200 people there. Um, and we decided, we thought it would be a good idea. And it wasn't like our farewell show. It was just a show. And rather than play songs of The Split, which had been doing really well, and the album, which people were excited to do, we played we played one song at the beginning, one song at the end. And in the middle, we did a 45-minute improvisation, noise improvisation thing, whilst my girlfriend at the time read poetry over the top of it. <laughs> and uh this was in front of like this was in front of like a metalcore crowd we were playing with bands that sound like earth crisis do you know what i mean and like um and 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 this guy dave who's a few years older than me and he remembers it well and he was like it was he was like it was impressively awful in the sense that everyone in the room was like i mean they're committed um you know they're going yeah. for it it's like this is fucking horrible but like they are Doing something more interesting, I suppose, than playing a greatest hit set. But I mean, anyway, um, and then afterwards, yeah. we went back to the crash house to crash or whatever. And the other two dudes were like, "Yeah, we're done. We don't want to do this anymore." Yeah, that that was the one to go out on. <clears throat> yeah. Incredible. Um, but just, anyway, anyone I, listening to this can yeah. find me joke, but I'd encourage you not to. <laughs> this podcast is presented by DistroKid an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Was that the first band that you recorded with? Uh, no, because so the, the previous incarnation of that band, Bajoritos, we did a demo. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and then and even like actually the bedroom band I had, my friend Chris, who remains one of my best friends, and we did a new project together this year, uh, last year called Eating Before Swimming, which is a kind of like insane electro noise. Oh, project. awesome. Um, yeah. And that's, he was the drummer in my bedroom band when I was a kid. Um, but uh, he has endless kind of like just boombox with a mic in, in the corner, pressing record of all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and again, he must be killed for having this material. It's what why I can a- never stand for office. Do you know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> what about uh what about like going to a studio and actually like you know do, doing that sort of situation like I what mean, was your first band doing that that was that was the bedroom band as well actually now that i think about it we i think it was like a birthday present from my mum. we got one day in a studio in like a port cabin studio that was run by a jehovah's witness 
I now remember, who was called Mike, who, and we had, we were like 14 probably, and we had songs that were all just like, fuck everybody. And, um, and I remember he like tried to have like a chat with me about my lyrics and Jesus kind of oh, thing. Oh, goodness. Like not, not in a, not in an especially aggressive way. I think he was kind of concerned more than anything else. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, I just kind of told him to go fuck himself or whatever. <laughs> um, right, as you but that, that, Yeah, as you do. But that was a day in a studio. That was a day in a studio, yeah. Yeah. Um, as your time went on as, you know, someone was playing music, uh, did you find yourself um, enjoying the studio or how has that relationship changed with you over all these years? I mean, granted, it's much uh, different than you're playing bass, you're playing, you know, you're not, yeah, yeah. You're not singing. Um, but... I mean, it was a long time before we did anything other than just like, get live takes and do that and that was the end of that you know totally, the last yeah. the last knee jerk record we did in like a week and i remember we did the instruments separately and that was like mind bending at the time and we thought it was really cool we weren't like averse to it because we knew that that's how other people did it but we just didn't right. know how one would do that um uh but i mean i don't know it's funny because like nowadays i am working as a producer myself and so but that's a recent development for me the last kind of three or four years and um I'm kind of annoyed that I paid. I didn't pay as much attention as I could have done. Um, the first really like meaningful studio experience I had was the first Million Dead record, which I still on thousand percent back, both kind of artistically and sonically. I think it's a really interesting sounding record. It's yeah. really aggressive sounding yeah. record, um, but not in a kind of traditional kind of punk or hardcore. There's nothing PV fifty one fifty about that record. Do you know what I mean? It's like. It's really kind of raw and weird. It sounds more like a Stooges record than anything else. And I, I, I really like that. No, I can hear that for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to, to talk just briefly about that record mm. because I noticed you did it with a guy named Joe Gibb, who, yeah. who I saw had like, pre, you know, early on worked with like the Kinks and like even like David Bowie and like Erasure and stuff yeah. like that. Like, yeah, wh what was that? Were you intimidated uh, going in with him? Or? No, because no, so there was a weird story about this. There was basically the BBC in the UK used to have these like insane kind of outposts all around the country of like these huge buildings with broadcast facilities in. And they kind of scaled back over time. And quite a few of them were like just in the, just the kind of like purpose built studio buildings that's just never going to get fucking built privately do you know what i mean and um the one in swansea which is in like west wales i mean it's, it's pretty middle of nowhere it got taken over by a record label called mighty atom records and they turned it into a studio for a few years and joe was the guy there and so it was this incredible room and an incredible desk uh and uh, and mic collections and stuff and joe i think had been the bbc in-house guy there which i think is where all of those credits come from but, oh, um, got it. I think, I think I'm not, that would make sense sure. for sure. Yeah. He was a maniac and I didn't really, he was quite, I feel like he was ancient, but he was probably in his forties. Do you know what I mean? And we were in our twenties, yeah. but, um, I, and also like, I'm reasonably sure he was pretty high quite a lot of the time in a way that I couldn't quite identify then because I was too young, <laughs> but looking back, I'm like, yeah, we got a nice car and drove around really, really fast while he kind of like sniffed a lot. And it was like, oh yeah, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I don't know that for sure. But he was, a, he did an incredible job on that record. I just remember him being really like, like super like wired and like rah, 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 and engaged in a good way, like all yeah. the time. And, and he, I think, you know, it was, we, we didn't really have any fucking idea what we were doing. 
Um, and he got an incredible document of who we were as band at the time in a way that I'm just so grateful for, you know, that's, I mean, that's a incredible thing to have too, because I feel like so many of us, especially when you're young, when you're playing these bands that are, you know, you're going into a studio with those older people, you're often dealing with people who they're not happy to be there. They're doing this for a paycheck and they're just hitting record. They have no interest. Oh, yeah. but like that was, was that potentially one of the first times where you worked with somebody who was like engaged and excited about the process? Hard, hard, I mean, it's the first time I'd say I ever worked with anybody who could be described as a producer. Um, and so that was cool. And also it's like, we had no knowledge. I mean, the second million dead record we did, I have mixed feelings about, I think there's some really good material on there. I really don't love the way that it sounds. And I think part of that is our fault because we had a little knowledge by that point. We had enough to kind of throw an oar into the works um, and kind of, like having it you know oh yeah i want to like multi-layer and track the guitars kind of thing because i've heard that's what other people do and yeah. like i wish that record just had a fucking fagazi guitar sound on it it would be a lot better but it doesn't it has this kind of mushy multi-layer thing because we were just sort of i think we'd all just recently got into failure and decided that we want to sound like failure which was a fucking dumb idea <laughs> <laughs> I, I know not because i mean i adore failure. Of, yeah of i love failure yeah, God yeah, damn. Yeah. but like we shouldn't have been trying we were kind of a we were like a sort of spiky garage punk band we should not have been trying to sound like failure um so uh yeah but i mean yeah joe did a great job and i'm not i think part of the reason why is because we weren't entirely sure of what it was he was doing with us at the time totally you know? yeah and so that was also the start of your relationship with extra mile right who you yeah, went yeah, on to, yeah. To, to work with for a very very long time how did I, uh to this day yeah yeah how did that relationship start uh, it started because Extra Mile, before Extra Mile was Extra Mile, it was a company called Press Council that was like a press agency back when independent press agencies were more of a thing. And they would quite often do a thing. Lots of people did this in the late 90s, early 2000s. They'd work with an unsigned band, getting them press and stuff, help them get signed. And in return, when you get signed, you hire them as your press agent kind of thing. Um, and that was that was a pretty standard um, business model at the time. And uh, so Charlie, who ran press council picked up many dead he was a big fan and sort of did a bunch of press for us and we didn't really get signed we nobody i don't know quite why I, well in fact i do i do know at least partly why which is that we we had this like showcase gig at 93 feet east which was like a 300 cap club cool club in east london and it was rammed full of a and r we had like the music industry was there to see us and we could we could easily sell 300 tickets in london and there was a buzz about us as a band and we decided to open the show with like a nine minute noise jam um and like not not with poetry over it and not but like says, but yeah the knee jerk it, no, 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 it, wasn't, it, didn't. it wasn't like that it was more <laughs> it was way more kind of like um thought uh, out well, yeah, it was kind of like Fugazi-esque. It was kind of like Neurosis. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was like, you know, it was an aggressive wall of noise, like, well, so skillfully executed. But from the point of view of there being a bunch of a guys in the room who were interested in the band could, like... Because this was when, you know, Thursday and Thrice and 100 Reasons and all those kind of bands were kind of exploding. And, yeah. and I, you know, I think they were... Very, and we, in fact, we played with most, pretty much all those bands um, at around as a support act at around that time. We opened for Funeral for a Friend forever and this kind of thing. And, uh, and we did have some kind of two and a half minute long hummable chorus songs. Yeah. We just played them later that night and like quite a few people left. <laughs> and afterwards, Charlie was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Do you know what yeah. I mean? like, yeah. Oh. And, and again, I just sort of remember it. Um, uh, I remember it being a good idea at the time. I mean, there, there's a fair amount of stuff there where I feel pretty proud because we were almost in this really un- 
unmeta way we were artistically integral. We didn't give a fuck. Do you know what I mean? And we didn't. We weren't kind of trying to not give a fuck. We just genuinely didn't. Um, yeah. You know, we wanted to do well. We wanted to tour and sell records and play to more people and stuff. But we were going to do it our way or or not at all. Like it wasn't. We didn't like have a band meeting to discuss that or think of ways in which we could be awkward. We were just awkward. Um, when I was revisiting some songs off that second record in particular, um, you know, I'm, I don't know if it's different for you since you're obviously the one making the music and stuff, but like you start to hear the, 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 the beginnings of like the type of choruses and the, and the songwriting that I think ended up translating to, especially like the first <sighs> record for you, your first solo sure. record. Yeah. Um, I mean like the last song on that record is basically like an acoustic-y sort of song it, right yeah it is i mean which i can't play i didn't play the guitar on it and i still can't play that fucking guitar part and once in a blue moon people ask me to play it and i'm like i can't yeah um uh, i mean it, like it's funny when i started doing solo stuff i operated on the principle that what i was doing was radically different again it was like i i i feel quite good about it in terms of my kind of integrity looking back in the sense that like when million dead broke up i got asked to join a few established hardcore bands two actually that who were doing very well and were signed and had just lost a singer and this kind of thing and and, and indeed if me and ben who the drummer had put together another band who, who was also a knee jerk we put together another kind of hardcore ish band i'm sure we could have done very well very quickly and i did this acoustic thing which at the time was really not a well-trod path and um uh just a lot of people were just like what the fuck are you talking about do you know what i mean and like and i was like no no i'm doing this now and i operated on the principle that there would be precisely zero crossover in, in terms of audience or appreciation because to my mind they were so different um some people came along for the ride in a way that kind of surprised me at the time i think now looking back i can see i mean it's kind of what you're saying basically that there is actually some kind of melodic through line totally and of course there is ultimately because like I'm I'm me I'm a writer in this and I have my idiosyncrasies as yeah. a writer but like I do remember I literally got laughed out of an office by one of the groups of people that Melinda had been working with I went in to see if they'd be interested in continuing to work with me as a solo artist playing folk music and they all burst out laughing and told me to fuck off um uh so you know there was a people the whole kind of guy from a punk band does an acoustic record was not a thing at that point yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, we've seen it over and over. It's it's a, it's a difficult path for a lot of us to take because you're starting from scratch, but there's not really such a thing as starting from scratch because you've no. already facilitated this fan base and sure. they have expectations of what you're going to do. So like, you know, hats, hats off yeah. to you for sticking with it. <laughs> well, and, thank you. And I mean, I, I do remember there was a really kind of significant moment for me when I finally stopped getting put on posters as X million dead, which took oh, like true. three years. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and that, I, it's not to say that I was in any way, like ashamed of what we did in that man i remain to this day incredibly proud but it was just at a certain point it's like motherfuckers like i've been solo for almost as long as million dead were a band now do you know what i mean no like, totally totally <laughs> i was along. curious were you writing the songs that ended up on uh the sleep is for the week record while million dead were still together no um what happened was i did i did actually no that well maybe <laughs> basically um i had started the other this other thing started happening which was entirely social at first like um when million dead first started touring uh and um my then girlfriend kind of ended up kind of sleeping with everybody at the bar which we used to hang out at together whilst i was away which i wasn't stoked about <laughs> um and uh this guy who was a friend of a friend um 
called Dave Danger, uh, who I just sort of knew from parties and stuff. And I was bemoaning this turn of events. And he was like, well, I've just moved into this bar. And, you know, we don't sleep with each other's girlfriends and stuff. And you should come and hang out. And it was this bar called Nambuka. And he, it was it was a borderline squat. I mean, it was a fucking shit heap and it had rats and and, yeah. and everybody that there was everybody was crashing there there's probably about eight people who technically lived there but lots of other people sort of hanging around everybody was high all the time and but it was this beautiful scene of, of like more acoustic based music and a big part of it was this guy jay who's still touring now as beans on toast and he was one of the guys who ran it and he had a guitar and he played folk songs and uh there was a 16 year old girl called laura marling started hanging out there marcus mumford was around um wow yeah uh jamie t was a big part of the scene you know there was there was all these people and we were all kind of young and but uh, by which i mean kind of late teens early 20s and high and discovering a new type of music and had no expectations and it was this sort of bizarrely naive scene um and, and, you know, for me, I remember seeing Jay play at a lock-in where he, I was in the middle of trying to write songs in 13.8 that were about Russian communism or something. And Jay was like, here's a song with G, C, and D that's about last weekend. And it was like, oh, my God, that's so much more punk than what I'm doing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Wow. Um, and it really turned my head. So I started playing at the open mic there that was called Sensible Sundays. And I had two songs. That was the romantic fatigue and the real damage whilst million dead was still a going concern. And then million yeah. dead, one of the kind of running gags was that everybody from that scene hated my band because we were way too heavy. They were all kind of folk and indie kids. Um, and then on the day we had a, we sort of all fell out with each other. We had a bad meeting. We had agreed to do one more tour that we already had booked and then go our separate ways. And after that bad meeting, I went to the bar, which I was now going to like all the time. Yeah. And I went in and seriously, Jay was like, why the long face kind of thing behind the bar. And I was like, my band broke up and he went, oh, I hate your band. That's great news kind of thing. <laughs> I was like, fuck. And, and and I was like, I don't know what to do. And he said, do the fucking, do the song. Do this thing, and yeah. Yeah, he was like, you've got those two songs. They're fucking great. I love those songs. Oh my uh, God. And I was like, oh, uh, it was slightly deflating in a way oh, at the time. Wow. That reminds me of two very different things. One, um, I don't know if you know this. This might be a little inside baseball, but you might enjoy it. Where um, the drummer of Seisha was the original drummer of Interpol. Really? And all of the people from Seisha were like, when are you going to quit that fucking bad bar band? And <laughs> he quit because he kind of got bullied out of oh, no. doing it. Um, no. which is absolutely crazy. So that's a grudge I would hold on to forever. So there's mm. that. So that so that's kind of funny where it's like he obviously has this other life going on, but the other people were like, What are you doing with this thing? So that's sort of funny. Yeah, yeah. But, but then on top of that, um, what you were describing as like what you were first writing <laughs> as uh as your solo stuff, then you have that friend sort of giving you, you know, giving you that advice or like, you know, just talking about I wrote the song about yesterday. It reminds me of uh were you ever uh did you ever listen to Phil Oaks? Were you ever Phil Oaks? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a huge fan too. And like, it rem- that almost reminds me of, uh, on a, obviously a, mu- a much smaller punk scale of like the Phil Oaks, Bob Dylan relationship where like Bob Dylan was like, yo, uh, you know, you could write about like personal stuff. But yeah, Phil yeah. Oaks, Phil Oaks was like, what are you talking about? I have to write all of this like very yeah, intellectual about the draft protest yeah. song. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And totally. whatever else. And he's just like, you could also just like write love songs too. You know, you yeah, can yeah. do that, right? And that's that's where their their uh, relationship got really tough because you know they were always trying yeah. to one up each other, or whatever. But yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I was uh, just 
what was your first experience like doing like recording that solo material though like was it intimidating were you nervous because it was like your first time hearing yourself back in that sort of naked sort of energy uh, kind of i mean i'd have got used to the sound of my own voice on record by that point because i've been sure. in a few bands so i was kind of into i knew that it was i was still i was figuring out what a, i mean it was this wasn't the central motivation for it there was a degree of shock therapy to it it was like you know, let's do something I don't know how to do. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm totally. going to stand on this stage on my own. Like if something goes wrong in a solo show, you can't roll around the floor and scream, blame the drummer and do a fucking noise set or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, can't hide behind all these other people. Totally. Right. And and I liked that. I found that appealing. Um, I found, you know, I, I thought that was a, uh, uh, a good challenge. And, it, and, and, and like, you know, it's not that I didn't write songs in any of the bands I was in before, but I was became really focused on songwriting as an activity that was kind of divorced from genre considerations, you know. And I got much more, like, analytical about songwriting kind of thing. I got really obsessed with, like, everything from, like, ABBA to Regina Spector to Bill Withers to whatever and trying to see how people put songs together. But also, I mean, it's like because I grew up with Maiden and then Nirvana and all the rest of it, like... Dylan and Springsteen were kind of news to me in my twenties, you know, I'd not, and indeed even the fucking Beatles, most of the Beatles, um, you know, and like, I went through this period of kind of discovering Neil Young, do you know what I mean? And, uh, and going, wow, that's really good. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And like, I mean, like I knew the song, um, Bob Dylan writes propaganda songs by the Minutemen before I'd heard any Bob Dylan songs. Yeah, you know, like, and it was just this kind of ass backwards way of coming at music. But what it meant was that when I started kind of playing his guitar, like, I mean, for example, um, and like, a he's a friend, and B he's an influence. But it is true that basically, after about six months of doing solo shows, somebody went, "You know, you sound like Billy Bragg," and I went, "Who the fuck is that?" And they and they were like, "What are you talking about?" And then <laughs> and it had this really like air eh, kind of moment. So I went and bought a Billy Bragg record and went, "Oh, this is fucking amazing." Yeah. And then started pursuing, you know, and I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not influenced by songwriting. I mean, I've spent a fair amount of my career being told I sound like Billy Bragg. So. But, uh, but um, you know, and indeed have then since toured with him and played with him and, and become friends and stuff. But, he, you know, it, um, uh, it was, uh, it was a, that kind of discovery thing was kind of ongoing whilst my solo career was starting, which was kind of cool because it, it, everything was, it gave it a kind of freshness and excitement. In terms of recording and stuff, I'm, actually the first solo recording I did was with a guy called Tristan who actually ended up recording Love Iron Song and In Keep My Bones and is going to do my next one as well. So it's been a... Wow. Uh, well, he's going to mix the next one. I'm going to record it. He's going to mix it. But like, that's been a long relationship there. And he was sort of a friend of a friend um, with a Paul Weller haircut and had no idea what hardcore even was. Uh, but I had an acoustic guitar and he was like, you want to sound like Neil Young? I was like, yeah. And he was like, I could do that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I saw uh, some of the production credit for those first couple of records was a guy who ended up being in your band too, uh, Ben Lloyd. Ben. Yeah, friend, ben. yeah, Ben. Yeah, yeah. So Ben, I mean, well, so the band kind of came along. Ben and Tarrant and Nigel were in a band called Dive Dive. And in between Million Dead tours, I used to crew for other bands because I didn't have anywhere to go when I wasn't on tour at that period of time. Um, and I was touring for a band called Ruben, who are a great British rock band who sort of been, should not have been forgotten. Check out Ruben. Um, very Fast, Very Dangerous by Ruben. It's an incredible deck record. But uh, I crewed for them and then Dive Dive were their support band. And then uh, we became friends and then... I started doing the solo thing shortly thereafter and they said, well, look, we have a, we're a band and B, we sort of have a recording set up in our house. So I ended up doing my first record with them, uh, mainly with Ben, but with all of them. And then, sure. um, and then, and then it was just like, if I ever get to the point of having a band, which in point of fact, I always wanted to do. Um, 
you know, there are some people, not so much anymore, but back then it was like, man, I preferred you when you were just solo. And it was like, that was never my intention. That was never really. <laughs> yeah. Because um, uh, I was, you know, Springsteen was the model for a, a long time. But, um, uh, but yeah, so when I needed the band, it's like they'd already played on, like the first EP they played on that. Do you know what I mean? Um, so. Right. Before uh, before I, I get into a couple of album-specific stuff I wanted to talk to you about, um, I didn't want to skip over this. What was your first tour? Uh, so my first tour, well, that was a knee-jerk tour with Abjur in the summer 1998. And there were, it was fucking hell. So there was, we were two bands. Abjur were, were a four-piece, we were a three-piece. And... A bunch of our friends came along as well. We were all 16, 17 years old. And then we had this guy who we met through like an advert in a, on a pinboard in a uh, in a rehearsal studio who was old enough to hire a van or had his own van or whatever it was. And, um, and we booked like two weeks of shows around the UK. Through A lot of them were booked through a payphone. There was a BYOL page in a zine called Fracture that was a UK hardcore zine that just had like, you know, phone numbers. And uh, I booked, me and Chris booked a shitload of it through that payphone. And it was kind of a disaster in places. Like, yeah. I re- remember we got to Salisbury and the venue had never even heard of us. <laughs> and, and the promoter Classic. wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but then I also remember, like, we played a show in Leeds at 120 Rats. It was this legendary squad. And it was the last ever show at 120, Leeds, 120 Rats. And the bill was us, Abjure, end of the century party and arsehole parade. Um, Whoa! Yeah, I know it was crazy, and I was super into both those bands. And both of those bands broke up in the car park after the show in this gigantic screaming match. Oh my god! <laughs> and, wow. um, we all got the flu. We lost loads of money. We slept on the floor everywhere. Um, you know, a good night would be like fifty people, sort of thing. Oh yeah! And it was funny. We got home from it, and half the people were just like, "Fuck that forever," and the other half of us were like, "I want to do that again." Exactly. Oh. I mean, it's it's it gets mentioned a lot here, but yeah, that's the uh, that those first the very first ones you do really let you know if you have the brain damage capability to be like, I need more of that. Yeah, totally. And it's like I never want to make that a bravado thing because fuck that noise. But like, it was just kind of like some of us enjoyed the experience and some of us didn't. (laughs) And who could ever blame the people that didn't? You know, like on paper. No one should enjoy that. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's I, 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 I just think remember our friend, we had this friend called Tatton who came along for the tour and he was, I remember getting back to London. He was just like, I am never, ever getting in a fucking van of any description ever again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was, uh, what was your first time touring in the States? First time touring in the States was in 2007. I did a run with Jonah Matranga and Josh English from Six Going On Seven. Um, uh, who was doing a solo thing at the time. Um, and Jonah was sort of the, the name dude. I'd met Jonah because he opened for Funeral for a Friend on a tour when we were also on the bill, uh, which was, I think, was kind of subconsciously head-turning for me because he was playing solo on a punk rock hardcore bill, which I, I was, it was like, hmm, uh, interesting, you know? Um, yeah. And so we did this run together in the States. We did a few shows warming up South by Southwest, did South by Southwest, and then we drove up the west coast um jonah jumped off in la and then me and josh me and josh drove up the west coast playing to nobody i remember we played a free show in eureka and no one came (laughs) i think that might still happen today but yeah 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 yeah. and and like we played a show in bellingham 
Um, and the only person who came was the promoter for the following night show in Seattle, who was just like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I feel like this is a good time to interject this where uh, I, I need to uh, hilariously apologize to you because many, 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 many years ago, you I recorded a podcast that never came out in your oh, hotel really? room. Uh, do you not this? I'm this makes me even feel better that you don't remember this. This was so long ago, Frank. Uh, where I I had this idea, like I had done a radio show, and then I was like, I want to do a podcast. So I bought the equipment, and then I interviewed <laughs> maybe ten people. Uh-huh. And then I'm a cart before the horse guy. It came to edit it. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I had a panic attack, and then we had to write a record. So they never came out. Wow. But okay, so I feel like I don't. I don't really remember that. I'm, it I'm, was. I'm sad it was to say. A, very long time ago and this makes okay. me feel even better so all right okay we're past that but what i want to say is i so we talked because we had talked about it then but i saw you on that tour mm. at oh wow the knitting factory with jonah oh yeah and uh so this is going to be fun to go through this again uh i bought the campfire punk rock ep uh-huh and i'm a huge jonah fan especially at that time right sure, so sure. i'm there for the for jonah or whatever but I was so blown away by your set. And then I became very obsessed with that Campfire Punk Rock EP Hmm. and gave it to Casey Lee. Fuck. Okay. Yeah, I did. Well, hold on. You've just joined a fucking great mystery in my life. Really? That's like, because I remember I got an email from this guy called Casey Lee from Florida asking if he could put out a record in the States. I was like, okay. I mean, who the fuck are you? Um, But yes, of course you can. And I I never quite knew how he'd got a hold of it. Well, now I do. That's amazing. Okay. Because I'm working. So I'm working at a record store in Burbank, California, which is long gone now. Casey Lee had moved out to California. So for people listening, Casey Lee was a guitar player in Fake Problems. So mm. Casey Lee uh, had come out to California to be an act to like his parents wanted him to be an actor. He was like homeschooled. He would basically just like walk around in the mall area by himself. And I was working at the record store. I stopped him one day. He ended up becoming like the mascot of our record store. Like he would just hang out <laughs> all day, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. So that, yeah. I was getting him into music me. and stuff like that. So um, I had, you know, he had moved back to Florida. I'd seen him a couple of times. I gave him a copy of that Frank uh, of the Frank Turner fucking Campfire Punk Rock EP, and he apparently contacted you, and then you ended up yeah. ended up doing the ten inch with him, which is like yeah, totally. Coolest, and that and that was my second U.S. tour was a house show tour of Florida with Fake Problems, which was just so insane. It was a good time, but it was yeah. wild. I feel very honored that uh, I didn't realize that, that was your first time ever in the states. That, that yeah, 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 totally. I, I, I mean, fucking show. hell, yeah. You, I mean, that's this, this is OG as it gets, man. <laughs> Damn, that's awesome. Um, okay, so now let's uh, jump very ahead. So I wanted to ask you. I don't. It's fun again when doing this sort of uh, research and stuff. I didn't realize that you had done uh, Poetry of the Deed with Alex Newport. Oh, yeah, which I, I told everybody it's because he did Two Galants and stuff, and that was part of it, but the real reason is that Alex Newport was in fucking Fudge Tunnel. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And it was just it was like, like nail okay. bomb. Like, yeah, oh, he was, yeah. A, yeah. The, you know, Fudge Tunnel released an album called Hate Songs in E Minor, which stands as the greatest title for a heavy record ever to this day. That's really um, good. Isn't it? Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's like yeah. fucking hell. Uh, yeah, Alan, and he was a diamond. We've had a great time making a record with him. It was funny because I, I was reading that. Then I was like, who did I just have a long conversation with about Alex Newport? And then I remembered because I had just done my first live podcast with Justin Pearson of The Locust, oh, yeah. who yeah, did yeah. a bunch of stuff sure. with Alex Newport. And yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, 
So I just love the eclecticness of his catalog. A hundred percent. Like yeah. say, you know, and cause he did, um, he did, uh, in casino out for totally. as well, which is a big thing for me, but, um, but he did, um, for whom the toll tells, uh, is that what it's called? He did two, a bunch of two tells, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Great. Um, yeah. And I'm a huge two Galants fan, like huge. So that was, uh, and at the time that felt sonically roughly where I wanted to be. So we kind of connected over that. Got it. Got it. And did he, I mean, it sounds like uh, since he's obviously done those records too, but like, did you, did you two like connect really well? And like, he understood what you were trying to accomplish and it just like, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we did. We got on very well. Um, I mean, uh, I, we didn't end up working together again, but not in a kind of like I was dissatisfied sort of way. Uh, yeah. I, I, I very rarely gone back to a producer in my life. I've done it once actually um, in nine records. Which is uh, the newest one, right? Which was with yeah, uh, which we Rich did with Costley. Rich Costley again, yeah. yeah. So, um, which was slightly scratching an itch, to be honest, because I felt like we sort of did something interesting with Take Back Heart, and then Take Back Heart was my biggest, still is probably my biggest record, and I was kind of therefore hated it for years because I'm a punk kid. Um, and then, and then it was like, and I sort of came back around to it, and it was like, and then Rich always wanted to work with me again, and it was like, oh, right, fine, fucking fine, fine, we'll do it. And and God bless that guy, like I love him to pieces, but he's very. Uh, particular individual <laughs> yeah I, I remember talking about him very briefly with uh i had stephen brodsky on the show mm. oh yeah yeah because he had done i think antenna yeah him. yeah very much so um so is he like uh is he kind of renowned especially uh in the uk as this sort of like big kind of like big radio rock sort of like hit yeah, kind very, of guy because he has like a yeah. huge huge discography obviously like Absolutely. What, was, what was it that brought you to him Oh, well, because, I mean, we did a, um, in 2012, I did a license deal from Extra Mile onto uh, Polydor, which is quite universal. Uh, I've always remained signed to Extra Mile, and that's a point of pride for me, and still am. Uh, but, um, you know, we start, we did a kind of uh, a license deal on to Polydor, and that kind of gave us the opportunity to work with more money, to be fucking blunt. And, like, you know, uh, and, and they suggested Rich Costi as a producer that I could work with on their dime. Uh, and 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 part of it was kind of like fuck it, yeah. I've never had this opportunity before. Let's see how this goes. And it was a completely new new experience for me being produced by Rich Costi. That was like nothing at the yeah. time. It was it was a pretty bruising experience because he's a he is a um, taskmaster in the studio, should we say? Um, yeah. And uh, you know, and we ended up with a record that did very well. Um, so hooray! But like, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it for a good few years afterwards. So interesting. Uh, before I, I hit you with the last question, though, I wanted to uh, to bring up. Um, I love that you're about to tour the Counting Crows because. Oh yeah! Holy shit! Well, so in this entire kind of musical autobiography of my early years that we did earlier on, like the one thing there is this whole other kind of channel which is to do with my older sister. My older sister didn't have anything to do with punk or hardcore or whatever. She liked Levelers, Soul Asylum, Weezer, and Counting Crows, um, and she, I mean, she bought every, always and everything after and. That was the exact time that I was trying to learn how to play Hangar 18 and failing. And then it was like almost as kind of a relief from trying to play thrash riffs. I would like learn a few songs off August and everything after because they were so easy to play. Uh, and I figured out all the chord changes just by ear. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, the only song I couldn't get was Murder of One. And many years later, I discovered that a capo exists. And that's why I couldn't fucking figure that song out because it was like, what is this song in like E flat? Like, what yeah. the fuck is that about? Um, so, um, 
but yeah, so I, and and like I just always kind of knew. I mean, initially it was more to please my sister and give her something to play with an acoustic guitar on kind of campfire holidays and shit when I was a kid. Right. But it you know seeped into my bones, and and I do think that looking back now, a huge part of my thinking about songwriting is based on the first three Count Grows records, and I and I love them. I fucking love them. I met them. 12 years ago at a festival in Australia, 13 actually, now I think about it. And then we toured together in 2021 um, in the States for the first time. And it was just rad. It was so, it was, it was, I got to see Count Crows every night. So, yeah. But also, like, you know, I felt like it, it, I was, I, I appealed to their audience. Do you know what I mean? It was a good fit, should we say? Sure. And, um, and then, yeah, then we all got along really, really well. And they pretty much just said, Hey, anytime you want to jump on a tour, just call me kind of thing. So, uh, I'm flying to New Zealand on Monday. That's incredible. Yeah. I, I love that band. I, they're, they're, I'm like you, like as much as I was into fucking Deftones and, you know, all of this other stuff around that time, like I around here just got into my bones at an early age and it's just a timeless record. Um, all right, well, dude, when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? Um, that's such a good question. Uh, the first thing that it made me think of when I, I, I read that on your preparatory notes for this yeah. was um, my, uh, my touring sound guy, Luke, has this hilarious one-liner. Whenever you're like in the middle of a tour and you're having like a shitty time, like it's, you're, on a, you're, you're changing planes in, in Dallas airport at three o'clock in the morning and you're just all just like, kill me, and all the rest of it, he, t- he turns to the group and he goes, remember, we worked for this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like this didn't happen to us by accident. This is a thing that we wanted, that we worked for, and it's and it's kind of like it's a joke, but it's also true. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, but then it's always always it's funny. Like everybody and their dog talks about like you know growing up, idolizing, wanting to be in a successful band of rock and roll and blah blah. blah. And like you know, all the other thing I haven't mentioned is that the. Freddie Mercury tribute concert was hugely eye-opening for me when I was a kid and, and Queen was a huge part of my musical love. But also the Freddie Mercury tribute concert had like Guns N' Roses and um, Metallica on it as well. Amazing. But um, but but I was fortunate enough to be obsessed with Black Flag from a pretty early age and to, I read Get in the Van like it was a cross-tune a Bible and an instruction manual. Um, and, uh, you know, so my, my ambition from very early on wasn't headline Madison Square Garden and like do coke backstage with models and stuff. I would, it was almost aggressively not that, you know? Um, And like one angle to come at this is like, I think I can safely say that there is nothing in my background that is blue collar if we're honest with each other. But like, I always wanted to go about music in a blue collar way. It's like, it's honest work. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's almost more important to me. And maybe that's a hugely pretentious thing to say, but it's true. But like, I want to, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a working performer. Do you know what I mean? I'm a working songwriter. I'm a working performer. That's what I do. And I'm proud of that. And, you know, um, I'm proud of doing my job and doing it well. And all of the kind of mythology of Black Flag, you know, playing to four people. And it's like, you give them the same fucking show you would if there was 4,000 here. And all that sort of stuff was just kind of like, just deep in my bones from a really early age. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, funny. It's worth telling you. So, when I was a kid, I was getting into punk rock. I was into Sex Pistols, Green Day, and Offspring. Were kind of hovering into view, no effects, all that kind of stuff. I loved all that stuff. But like, I remember kind of reading, kind of like a, it was like a section of a music history book about punk, and I and I was super into it. And there were a lot of people with kind of spiky bowhawks and funny colored hair and all this sort of shit. And then there was just this kind of like footnote about hardcore that had a photo of Black Flag, and it was like four guys in like thrift shop clothes, thrift shop clothes with like short hair 
who looked like they were going to fucking kill you. And, and I was just like, who's that? I want to know who that is because that's yeah. so much more intense than the exploited. Do you know what I mean? Who kind of look like clowns. And it was like, yeah. I want to know who that is. And, and uh, um, uh, actually, to tell a story, I'm a raconteur, forgive me. I love it. Um, it was like, it was the day of my grandmother's funeral and I was wearing a suit and I got, I peeled off, I would have been like 14. I peeled off from the funeral and scooted into town and found a record shop and went in. This 14 year old preppy kid in a suit and I went, excuse me, you've got anything by Black Flag? And the guy was like, what the fuck? And then he was like, yes, I do. Here's the first, you know, the first four years or whatever. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah. And then, the, so, so anyway, so in terms of what I wanted, you, the question is, you know, when did you feel like you were doing the thing you worked for? Like what I wanted to do was, wasn't like I say, it wasn't necessarily to be fucking Def Leppard. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I wouldn't say that was true on the first tour that I did, but I sort of, um, there were million dead tours where it felt like we were doing what we meant to do. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to pick a specific moment, but like, um, that, you know, the, yeah, just the feeling of kind of being a jobbing musician doing, doing the work. Yeah. Another to pick another moment just briefly, like I mean, there's a venue in the UK called Rock City, which is the largest independent venue left, and there's three rooms there, and it's this institution here, and it's kind of it's a biker run place and all the rest. And yeah, everybody knows it over here. I'm sure you've played there at some. Is it Nottingham? Yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, a few years ago, I did a show at Rock City with my side project band Minglehard, and um, the guys there, like they put on the full the the headliners catering when we were just like playing the small room and stuff, and they were like, "You're part of our family," you know, and and that meant more to me than any awards that I might have been given or sales reports or whatever. It was like the guys of Rock City consider me on team. Okay, then I achieved the thing I set out to do. I love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I appreciate it, Frank. So much. Thanks. So uh, thanks so much for it, this. Out has today. been so, I mean, the thing is we could talk. I mean, you know what, man. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in, in Europe in the summer and let's uh, shoot the shit without a microphone running. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait. I can't wait. Awesome. That is our show. Thank you so much to Frank for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there is a bonus episode available right now where Frank answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can get that over at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. All right, enjoy the rest of your week. Have a good weekend and I'll see you next Wednesday. Take care. Bye-bye.